0: This audio file is part of the Libri Ideas Library and podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family and colleagues, but we ask you to respect the copyright which belongs to Libri Fellowship. Please don't modify this file in any way or publish the material in any format. Also note that the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Good, welcome all of you. We'd be great to see you all here for the beginning of our autumn lecture series. Um, it's wonderful to introduce Peter Williams, who's going to be talking tonight. Um, Peter's a local, aren't you? Por- Portsmouth-born, but lives in Southampton. That's a bit of a tension <laughs> there. <laughs> um, and um, is a philosopher, apologist, author, um, and uh, visiting lecturer at college Worldview College in Norway, but he's not Norwegian. He's from Portsmouth, Uh, and um, but but visits there and lectures. And uh, it was great to meet Peter a few years ago, probably the night or last year was it at the Veritas conference there. And um, great to link up since he's he's a local. So uh, I'll hand over to Peter in a minute, and um, we'll do the usual, where uh, uh, after Peter's given his lecture, we'll have just a little time till you can turn to your neighbour and we'll, um, yeah, maybe ask yourself what, you know, what question has arisen, what was new, what you'd like to ask. And then after kind of five minutes of uh, chatting together, we'll then have a QA and we'll bombard Peter with our questions. So, um, yeah, so do just be thinking about that. Yeah, what do I want to ask more about as we go through? Um, Just to say, yeah, I guess you'll hear, you know that we have a lecture schedule. Every Friday we have a lecture. Uh, Next week it's Dawn, one of our workers, Dawn Moers, and she's going to be reviewing uh, or revisiting Francis Schaeffer's book, The Mark of a Christian, and um, looking particularly at the tension between truth and love, and how we pursue unity in the midst of our differences. So that will be very relevant for our polarised, Culture, uh, so that's next week, um, and um, yeah. If there, I guess there's some people online, aren't they? So they can put questions as well in the chat, can they? Are you happy to do that? And we'll read them out. And special announcement: if anybody tomorrow is driving to London or to Bristol by any chance, <laughs> um, then uh, Lisa here, who's one of our you know, one of our students for a while, she Needs to get to Bristol, but can go via London on a bus, and uh, there's a train strike tomorrow. So if anybody happens to be driving to London or Bristol, see Lisa afterwards. Great. Okay, I think that's everything. Have I forgotten? Where's Sarah? Have I forgotten anything? She's not here. Okay, Peter. I'll hand over to you, and then um, yeah, we'll 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 sort of buzz together when you finish. Okay. Okay.
1: Sounds dangerous. Well, thank you uh, so much uh, to everyone for turning out uh, this evening. Uh, Thank you very much for the folks at Labrie uh, for hosting and uh, arranging this. Um, This may be the only talk you ever go to by an author with a new book out where they don't have any copies of it for sale. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, you... uh, should see distributed around the place some of these giant uh, business cards if anyone has a giant business card wave it in the air for those folks who don't have one so they can see it Uh, which will give you uh, notification of my website uh, and so on where you can find lots and lots of information free resources uh, links through to my podcast YouTube channels uh, etc and uh, which will uh, push you in the right direction of where you can click online to go and buy it from the publisher or Amazon or Uh, and so on. So uh, this is the most recent of a series of books that I've been doing of late uh, that are called, uh, sort of subtitled, Essays On. Uh, And I've been um, taking a, thank you very much, a selection of uh, essays that I've previously written on topics and then combining that with a very large uh, new press, uh, giving a bit of uh, spit and polish Uh, to the essays, uh, inviting someone with a more famous name than I have to write a foreword for it, to uh, help with sales. And uh, this is the, the, the most recent, so recent that it doesn't even feature on the front of my giant business card. This book is called An Informed Cosmos, Essays on Intelligent Design Theory. And you may well be asking yourself, okay, well, what is Intelligent Design Theory? And here is how I... Uh, think of it, kind of how I lay it out. Um, As a philosopher, I love boiling things down to a nice followable argument. And so here is how I boil intelligent design theory down to uh, a nice followable argument. I think there are basically three core premises or truth claims made by intelligent design theory. And those are the, the bits in orange. And if you think that the bits in orange are true, then you also ought to think that the bits in white are true, because they follow from the truth of the bits in orange. So, uh, I.D. premise one is that there exist one or more reliable tests for detecting intelligent design, for detecting when something genuinely is the product of intelligence making it. The second premise is that nature, the natural world, Exhibits empirical data that pass through one or more such tests for intelligent design. Now you can see that if both of those claims were true, it would follow that this core ID conclusion would follow that therefore at least one aspect of nature reliably signals it is the product of intelligent design. ID Theorists also make this third claim in orange here, that inferring intelligence design from empirical evidence using reliable tests is a scientific enterprise, a scientific thing to do. And if you also agree with that, then it would follow this secondary ID conclusion that therefore the conclusion that at least one aspect of nature, reliably signals intelligent design, is a scientific conclusion. So these three core claims are what it all hinges on. Let me introduce you to Dr. Bronowski. Now, I hasten to uh, add the caveat that this is a stock photo, but it is true that when I was very small, back in the 1970s, in the last millennium, I had a red-knitted teddy bear called Dr. Bronowski. I don't know how many people had teddy bears called Dr. Bronowski. Anyone anyone else? No, you might think it's a bit of a rare name for a teddy bear. Where did it come from? Well, it came from Dr. Bronowski, Dr. Jakob Bronowski, um, author of the book The Ascent of Man, which was the book of the BBC television series, The Ascent of Man. uh, That came out in 1973 and 74 respectively, and there's a photo of him from his television series. And it was uh, one of these uh, kind of early uh, big examples of science communication uh, television. You can kind of put it in the same category as the American kind of Cosmos series by Carl Sagan. Uh, You can even see here that uh, Carl Sagan says that the Ascent of Man is superb, so he's recommending it here. And I had a teddy bear named after Dr. Panofsky, so that may give you a kind of hint of the background that I was brought up in. Both of my parents were science teachers in state schools. Both of my parents were Christians. Dr. Panofsky put forward what he called... Um, the evolution of complexity by statistical processes, that is, evolution by natural selection, as part of what we might call the the grand evolutionary story, the kind of standard scientific picture of how we got where we are today, which makes a number of uh, claims including the Ancient Earth Hypothesis, that the Earth is about 4.54 billion years old. Uh, The so-called progress thesis, which says that the history of life shows a general progression from the the simplest type of prokaryotic single-celled organism to birds and mammals, in terms of complexity growing over time. The common ancestry hypothesis that says that contemporary organisms are descended from simpler, generally speaking, ancestral organisms. The universal common ancestry hypothesis which says that all living things descended from one original primordial organism. The Uh, standard kind of neo-Darwinism, or what I like like to call the blind watchmaker hypothesis, to take that phrase from Richard Dawkins' famous book. The idea that evolution, this increasing complexity over time, happens through natural processes requiring no purposeful, and especially no (laughs) non-material guidance. This, and note, philosophical idea, the blind watchmaker hypothesis, motivates the scientific theory that mutation and selection and perhaps other similarly undirected uh, mechanisms are able to explain the, the obvious appearance of design in the natural world. What we uh, call the the neo-Darwinian or modern evolutionary synthesis combines Darwin's theory of adaptation by natural selection with the science of genetics, because Darwin, through no fault of his own, just of when he was writing, didn't know anything about genetics. And so the combination of discoveries about genetics with Darwin's theory of natural selection produces the standard Neo-Darwinian synthesis of these fields of knowledge. There is a more recent discussion between adherents of the modern Neo-Darwinian synthesis and of a so-called extended evolutionary synthesis um, who advocate uh, these additional explanations of evolution. They say that that neo-Darwinian explanation, yes, it can explain some things, but it's not enough to explain all of the data. Uh, And they advocate additional explanations of evolution, of that change over time, but ones that are still framed in terms of an unguided, unplanned process of physical chance and necessity, to borrow a phrase from Jacques Manot. wrote a famous book called Chance and Necessity. In other words, blind watchmaker Darwinism, in this philosophical sense, remains the cornerstone of modern evolutionary theory, whichever side of that argument between the, the standard and the extended synthesis you might fall on. And finally, the the naturalistic origins hypothesis, the idea that life arose from non-living things, from non-life, by an unplanned and unguided, purely physical process of chance and or necessity. Now, given my upbringing, by the time I was kind of in my teens, kind of here's how I saw things. Um, Believing that natural history that I've just described was intended, uh, initiated, and sustained in existence by God, well, that wasn't part and parcel of any scientific theory as such, as scientific. That wouldn't qualify as a scientific idea. But then neither did any scientific theory as such deny any such framing that denial would be equally philosophical. In fact, even if one suspected on philosophical and or theological grounds that God guided that evolutionary process somehow, this wasn't something that science per se, would contradict, as long as one didn't think that positing that idea or inferring the existence of such guidance was a scientific thing to do. One was clearly then stepping into theology or philosophy. In other words, people are free to interpret science through the philosophical lens of a naturalistic, materialistic worldview but it's legitimate to interpret science through the philosophical lens of a theistic worldview. Now, note that one can accept and reject evolution in different senses once we've recognized that it's a bunch of different claims, only some of which are necessarily related to each other. For example, the bits in orange here would pick out Darwin's original theory in The Origin of Species. Darwin didn't assert the truth of universal common ancestry or uh, naturalistic origins and, as I've said before, didn't know anything about the genetics that lay behind the mutation selection, the kind of variation selection process that he was describing. And I just happened to have arranged these hypotheses in what I consider, at least, an order of most to least probably true. In descending order of plausibility, in other words. For example, atheist philosopher Jerry Fodor says this. (coughs) Phylogeny, that's another way of basically saying common descent, could be true even if the adaptationism, that is, variation and selection, creating change, isn't. So (coughs) common consent could be true, even if Darwinism isn't. The classical Darwinist account of evolution, as primarily driven by natural selection, is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. An appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists. Um, My little subtext here, I think he probably means not religious ones, right? (laughs) Perfectly reasonable biologists coming to think that the theory of natural selection can no longer be taken for granted. To quote from some biologists, uh, Scott Gilbert, John Opitz and Rudolf Raff observe, that starting in the 1970s, many biologists began questioning neo-Darwinism's adequacy in explaining evolution. Genetics might be adequate for explaining microevolution, but microevolutionary changes in gene frequency were not seen as able to turn a reptile into a mammal or to convert a fish into an amphibian. Microevolution looks at adaptations that concern the survival of the fittest, not the arrival of the fittest. Or atheist uh, philosopher and biologist Massimo Pigliucci says, modern synthesis doesn't cut it because it's got the conceptual tools to tell us how quantitative variations evolve, but not how qualitatively New traits arise. So he's he's on the uh, extended synthesis side, and different advocates of an extended synthesis argue for different additional, unguided, purely material mechanisms and argue with each other about which one or more of those are plausible. And the other side argue back, and so on, and that's kind of where the state of the field is at the moment. But I actually, strangely enough, got into this from what I would say is this kind of secondary issue of, is it science? This premise three, that inferring design is a scientific enterprise. I don't think that's the most important question, for reasons that I will uh, now explain. But that's how I got into it, because I was studying philosophy and reading in philosophy of science this debate uh, about what is science and so on. In the last millennium, still, uh, I spent two years at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, among other activities, such as wearing bow tie at CU house parties. I wrote my MPhil thesis in philosophy, I wrote my first book on the arguments for the existence of God, and I thought a lot about intelligent design theory, starting with the debate in philosophy of science about if ID was or was not something that you could legitimately call science. The and, and notice the word here is scientistic, not scientific. The scientific demand, the theory of knowledge demand that every rational belief to qualify as being rational must be justified by scientific empirical evidence is self-contradictory because A, it can't be justified by scientific empirical evidence... And B, it entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. If I can't believe A until I've got some scientific evidence for it, well, that's called the scientific evidence for it, B. But how do I rationally believe that B is reliable evidence, accurate evidence, and that it really does support A? In order to believe those things about B, I have to have some evidence for that. Otherwise, my belief doesn't matter. Call that C. You can kind of see where we're going to end up, which is an infinitely long way away, which is problematical. This claim is also open, I think, just to counter-example, um, e.g., um, we have logical knowledge. Um, we have metaphysical knowledge. We have moral and aesthetic knowledge, um, Now, rainbows are beautiful. There you go. I don't think that's a scientifically known thing. But I do think it's a known thing. In other words, because hard scientism, hard scientism is false, propositions, truth claims, can be both true and rationally believed without being scientific. Whereas the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel said, a purely semantic classification of a hypothesis or its denial as belonging or not to science is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or false. And once you see that those two claims don't necessarily coincide, then the is it science question becomes a lot kind of less interesting. Indeed, it seems to me that if intelligent design theory were something that was considered to be true, if everybody suddenly, you know, agreed, yeah, okay, intelligent design, that first two claims and the conclusion that followed from it, that's true it would be really implausible not to just call it science. I mean, what are you, practically speaking, going to do here? Let's defund the biology department at the universities and send all the money down to their colleagues in the philosophy department because that will help us more accurately understand and explain the physical world around us. Well, clearly, that's just not going to be practicable. So I think you should just overcome any qualms you have about calling intelligent design theories science if you thought it was true. So the is it true question trumps the is it science question, because if it is true, well, it seems, you know, the most plausible thing to do is just to call it science, right? And after all, what is this thing called science? To quote a famous textbook on the topic. Um, Philosopher's from Oxford, John Lennox, says, there is no one agreed scientific method. Though certain elements crop up regularly in attempts to describe what scientific activity involves. Hypothesis, experiment data, evidence, modified theory, prediction, explanation, and so on. But precise definition is exclusive. And to rule something in or out of a category, you really need a pretty precise definition. Here's the definition that I would give after some years of thinking about this. I would say that natural sciences are um, fallible. First order disciplines wherein humans seek to use epistemically virtuous methods to understand, explain, and or to predict as much as they can about physical realities, especially by paying attention to how empirical experience can confirm or undermine such truth claims. And I think if you think that seems like a reasonable definition of science I think that applies, and you'll see as we go through more of the talk, that that definition applies to intelligent design theory. It's not the same definition of science that we get in the kind of, what we might call the modernist definition of science. For example, in his take on evolution, uh, Charles Darwin stacked the deck by assuming that any explanation framed in terms of divine creation, although that's his kind of dialogue partner throughout the book, was, quote, not a scientific explanation. It's like, I'm in dialogue with this kind of creationist, God did it explanation throughout my work, and I'm proposing an, an alternative to that, but only my theory counts as scientific. Hmm. This is something that's come to be known in the literature as, as methodological naturalism. Um, the assumption of naturalism as a method rather than as a, a, a truth claim or a assertion of the sciences. Um, in a move that only partially avoids the point that inferring design is not the same thing as inferring divine design. Those are not the same thing. Uh, the US-based National Academy of Sciences, for example, says, the statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. The statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes, they assert. In other words, although science doesn't deny the existence of anything supernatural, it must never mention anything supernatural, because then it wouldn't be doing science by definition. But why kind of blinker science and restrict academic freedom in this way? Why follow that rule? A materialist and a substance dualist walk into a lab it's not quite an Irishman and a Scotsman walk into a bar, but it's as close as philosophers come, maybe. So a materialist, someone who thinks that everything is material, and particularly in this context, they think that the human mind is just a material thing, like it's your brain, full stop, right? And a substance dualist, someone who thinks not only do you have a physical brain, but you have a non-physical part or reality to your selfhood, your mind, your spirit, your, all sorts of terminology gets used, but it's something above and beyond the materially describable. Question, must they resolve their philosophical difference about whether humans are purely material objects or not before they invoke design as an explanation for something in their science done in their science lab. For example, the materialist might say, this Neolithic flint arrowhead is the product of design. And they would get a big tick from the methodological naturalists, right? Yes, you've said something scientific. Because we assume that the human designer is purely describable in natural physical terms. But the substance dualist, who says, this Neolithic flint arrowhead is the product of design, Uh -uh. because in the back of their, well, in the back of their brain, mind, it's disputed. In the back of their thinking about this, of course, if you ask them, and what kind of thing is that? source of design, and you push them with enough why questions, and what questions, and so on, they would say, yeah, okay, it's something that has this immaterial aspect to it. And suddenly, there, that's philosophy, right? But should the, the scientific status of a hypothesis be determined by the perhaps disputed metaphysical nature of the referent design, in a way that trumps the agreed functional reference. The functional reference that they both agree on here is, yeah, this is the product of intelligence. This was designed. What they disagree on is how to philosophically, metaphysically understand the nature of that designer or designers. But do they have to resolve that philosophy dispute before they can do science or before the forensic pathologist can say it was... Murder and not an accident. In other words, what I call in the book soft methodological naturalism leaves philosophy to philosophers. We, 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 both, we disagree about what intelligence fundamentally is, but we both agree that it's a thing that's sometimes the most reasonable explanation for the evidence that we have before us. And now we go down the pub and let's argue about substance dualism. (laughs) I mean, saying with the atheist Thomas Nagel, I've already quoted, that one one doesn't believe in God or perhaps anything supernatural, so one won't infer design in biology or cosmology. I think it's a bit like saying, I don't believe in aliens, so crop circles must be natural. (sighs) No, no, that's kind of putting the cart before the horses. First, we look at the evidence and we, quite rightly, I'm sure you agree, infer, yeah, design, intelligence was at work here. And then we get to arguing about best to interpret the metaphysical nature of the designer. Um, PS for crop circles, that's humans, (laughs) not aliens. But, you know, If you think there at least might be aliens, they're a candidate in the discussion, right? You need some reasons for preferring the human explanation rather than the aliens did it explanation. I mean, do we want to follow a rule to the effect that if the best, the best metaphysical explanation of a, a warranted, a reasonable, the most reasonable inference, in some case, is to design, and it happens to be in tension with naturalism, the best metaphysical interpretation of that design happens to be in intention with metaphysical naturalism, then as far as something called science is concerned, an unfalsifiable assumption that naturalism is true must trump that inference from evidence regardless of the evidence doesn't sound like the sort of rule I would want scientists to be following. For example, biochemist Bruce Alberts from America um, said in a speech, he was a president of the Biological Society of some kind at the time, and he said, science is basically the search for truth, and that a system that does not permit the search for truth cannot be a scientific system. But clearly, Alberts' vision of science is at odds with the methodological naturalism that leads someone like science writer John Farnell to declare this, it is the job of scientists to find out how apparent design in nature can be explained by natural processes. The best explanation right now is Darwinian evolution. Well, I would prefer the job of scientists to be to find out how apparent design in nature should be explained truthfully. As the atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Montan argues, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, It follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. Science is better off without being shackled by methodological naturalism, says Monton. Atheist physicist Sean Carroll agrees. He says, methodological naturalism, while deployed with the best of intentions by supporters of science, amounts to assuming part of the answer ahead of time. If finding truth is our goal, that is just about the biggest mistake we can make. I agree which pushed, all of which pushed me back to thinking, gosh, actually, I think the ID folks have the best of the philosophy of science argument here. Um, And more and more atheist philosophers of science seem to be agreeing with them, actually. And so I wonder if they're right about any of the other stuff that they're saying. (laughs) So then I opened that can of worms, right? And it drove back to premise one, and premise two. Premise one, that there exists one or more reliable tests for detecting intelligent design. Now, I've got a whole chapter in the book, which is a slightly spruced up reprint of a a peer-reviewed philosophy journal article I wrote on this some years ago, uh, on the design inference. Um, The the book here by... um, philosopher and mathematician William Dembski was kind of a a peer-reviewed monograph publication laying out in um, a lot of detail his way of uh, proposing a test for inferring design at that time in probability theory Uh, and then he made some gestures towards you you might want to apply this to things in the natural world maybe that would be interesting. Um, If you want um, this is it's very high level stuff. Okay, But if you're up for that, go for it, but I, I will also note that uh, he's due to bring out a second edition of that book soon, so you might want to wait for that. But in the meantime, get this book by co-authors uh, uh, Robert Marks, Dembski, and Winston Hewitt, which uh, is based on, uh, again, peer-reviewed papers that they've published, um, updating and refining their methodology of design inference. But approaching this as a philosopher, what I did in this uh, paper, in this chapter, was to look at people who disagreed with intelligent design theory and show that both either implicitly or explicitly, they used the same criteria, although perhaps at a a less kind of theoretical uh, high level of of abstraction, but they basically used the same approach to inferring design that Dembski was, was on about. And I'm not going to spend very much time on this because it's a a concept, and it's one that's really best conveyed, I think, to general audiences with concrete examples. Um, So here's the American philosopher William Lane Craig uh, kind of uh, giving a summary and a concrete example and I'll throw another in and I'll, I'll share one of the examples of the things that I looked at in the paper. So Craig observes that in order to detect design, to reliably infer design from data, we have to have two things. He says, in addition to high improbability, the the thing that we infer from has to be highly improbable, or another way to say the same thing is highly complex. In addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. When these two elements are present, we have what's called specified complexity, which is the tip off to intelligent design. Thus, in a game, for example, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It's one possible set of cards out of the, the pool of cards of that you know your hand permitted length out of all of the possible arrangements of hand give permitted length out of the set of cards, right? So any hand of cards you you have is, is unlikely. And that is not enough in and of itself to say, oh, gosh, look at this hand of cards. It must have been designed because it's unlikely. That won't work, clearly. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces. You can bet, haha, this is not the result of chance, but of design. OK, maybe the first time he gets all four aces, you go, oh, what a lucky hand. You beat me. The second time, you start getting a little suspicious. The third time, you get more suspicious. The fourth, how many times does he have to get all four aces in Dodge City before he has bullet holes in him, right? <laughs> Well here's uh, Richard Dawkins talking about specified complexity. He says, you and I are machines of a complexity of a magnitude to challenge credulity. And as a philosopher, I appreciate the fact that he takes the time to specify what he means by complexity here. Because he doesn't just mean unlikeliness. He says, complexity here means Statistical improbability in a non-random direction, dot, dot. Here's an example from an op-ed he wrote in uh, Free Inquiry. He said, specified complexity as a concept takes care of the sensible point that in the unique disposition of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts tossed in a box is as improbable as a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch. All right. so this particular arrangement of bits of watch in a box, that is one possible arrangement of all those bits of watch out of all of the possible arrangements. Yeah, it's very unlikely. This watch is also one possible arrangement out of all of the possible arrangements. But Dawkins says, we would not be justified in inferring design from looking in the the box. But if you see the watch, then you are. And the difference is that we have not just statistical improbability, but we have this in a non-random direction, uh, hitting an independently given pattern, is the idea, you know. So just to, to summarize, really, with a quote from Dembski on this. He points out that many special particular sciences already fall under intelligent design as a just as a general concept of getting, you know, empirical data and inferring design as an explanation for it. Including archaeology, cryptography, forensics and SETI, that is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, if you look for a radio signal you don't we just want a random radio signal, you want one in, that encodes how to build Jodie Foster a time-travelling machine that goes or you know, whatever, or that has like the prime numbers from one uh, up to a, a, a significant value. I- intelligent design in that sense is thus already a part of science. Moreover, it employs well-defined methods for detecting intelligence, and as my paper shows with other examples, with both uh, naturalists and theists who disagree with intelligent design theory, but they apply that that same kind of specified complexity criteria in in various fields. So these methods, together with their application, constitute the, the theory of intelligent design. The question, therefore, is not whether intelligent design constitutes a genuine scientific theory, it already is, but whether As a scientific theory, it properly applies to questions of cosmic and biological origins. In a sense, it's linking between intelligent design theory, which forensics, SETI, cryptography, and the theory of intelligent design as applied to cosmology or biology. That's where it gets controversial. That is, with premise two. This is really where the rubber hits the road. That nature exhibits empirical data that pass one or more reliable tests. Let me give you one or two as time allows. Scientific discoveries beginning in the 1950s revealed the complex information processing systems and intricate molecular machines within cells reviving discussions about design in biology. In 53, Francis Crick and Jane Watson announced their discovery of the the three-dimensional double helical structure of DNA. In 58, Crick correctly, as we later showed, theorized that the sequence specificity of amino acids in proteins derives from a prior specificity of arrangement in the nucleotide bases of the DNA molecule, which functioned just like alphabetic letters in an English text or binary digits in software or machine code. As Richard Dawkins states, at the bottom of my garden is a large willow tree and it's pumping downy seeds into the air containing DNA, whose coded characters spell out specific instructions for building willow trees. It's raining instructions out there. It's raining programs. That is not a metaphor. It is the plain truth. Well, where do programs come from? Starting with Hungarian-British scientist philosopher Michael Plionier's landmark 1967 paper, uh, Life Transcending Physics and Chemistry, the recognition that information lies at the heart of biology has formed the basis for a series of increasingly sophisticated arguments against any reductive type explanations of life in terms of physical law and or chance and for the need to incorporate an appeal to intelligence into any causally adequate explanation of life. Uh, To summarise with a quote from Stephen Meyer, uh, who wrote the foreword to my book, he says, there's simply too much information specified complexity in the cell to be explained by chance alone. The information in DNA and (laughs) RNA and so on has also been shown to defy explanation by forces of chemical necessity, by physical laws. Saying otherwise would be like saying a headline arose as the result of chemical attraction between ink and paper. DNA functions like a software program. We know from experience that software comes from programmers. So Dawkins says the complexity And he means, note, specified complexity of the living body. So mind-shattering that the temptation to kind of buckle at the knees and succumb to what he calls a non-explanation is almost overwhelming, but not quite, because he says humanity's best estimate of the probability of, and I've highlighted the difficult, problematic phrase here, divine design, dropped steeply in 1859 when The Origin of Species was published and has declined steadily through subsequent decades, as evolution has consolidated itself from plausible theory in the 19th century to established fact today. Um, Don't look behind the curtain at those extended evolutionary synthesis guys who disagree with it. So what's really going on here is that we have this, again, this simple argument about specified complexity indicating design and biology containing things that exhibit specified complexity. Dawkins counters it by saying, actually, no, okay, they, yes, these biology does contain things that are specified by, like, doing certain jobs, being uh, an outboard motor, um, being a little machine that transports things from A to B in your cells, and so on. But they're not complex. Biology isn't actually, despite appearances, complex enough to warrant a design inference, because you have to have both of those things. Remember. He says, no, it's it's not actually complex enough because we've got this simpler adequate explanation, neo-Darwinism. His appeal to Neo-Darwinism is a denial that the specified components of biology are complex or unlikely enough to warrant a design inference. So note that Darwin's philosophical blind watchmaker hypothesis is still key here. And famously in his book um, Climbing Mountain Probable. Uh, Dawkins argues like this, he says, you know, the larger the leap through genetic space, the lower the probability that the resulting change will be viable and thus selectable, let alone an improvement. Hence, evolution must, in general, be a crawl through genetic space, not a series of, of leaps, big changes, which look too designed. Dawkins likens this gradual approach to getting biological complexity, to climbing Mount Improbable, he says, "Yeah, there's this cliff of apparently impressive complexity on one side of Mount Improbable. It can't be conquered apparently without design. But the back side of Mount Improbable supposedly has a series of individually and jointly not too unlikely selectable steps leading to the summit." Dawkins asserts that although we've no idea what gradual and not too unlikely path organisms took up Mount Improbable, they must have done so. He says, however daunting the sheer cliffs that the adaptive mountain first presents, graded ramps can be found the other side and the peak eventually scaled. Question, how does Dawkins know that these graded ramps can be found without having found them? Well, he says, without staring from our chair, we can see that it must be so because nothing except gradual accumulation could in principle do the job. What job's that? Oh, the job of explaining life without mentioning design. Clearly, gradual accumulation is not the only possible explanation, which therefore must be true because the Darwinian blind watchmaker thesis is an alternative to design. And you see that right back in The Origin of Species. So to put this in philosophical terms, Dawkins begs the question in favor of philosophically Darwinian naturalistic evolution against design. He says, there cannot have been intermediate stages up that gradual path that were not beneficial. There's got to be a series of advantages all the way. If you can't think of one then that's your problem not natural selection's problem. Well I suppose that is a sort of matter of faith on my part since the theory is so coherent and so powerful. As the Nobel Prize winning theoretical physicist Brian Josephson points out In books such as The Blind Watchmaker, a crucial part of the argument concerns whether there exists a continuous path leading from the origins of life to man, each step of which is both favoured by natural selection and small enough to have happened by chance. It appears to be presented as a matter of logical necessity that such a path exists, but actually there is no such logical necessity. Rather, commonly made assumptions in evolution require the existence of such a path. And I think the more that we have discovered about the astonishing complexity of what's going on inside the biological world, the less and less plausible the neo-Darwinian explanation has become. And anyway, what about the origin of life? as Bradley Martin again says, Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. You've got to have something pretty complicated for it to be capable of undergoing natural selection because it has variation as it reproduces. And I mean, you've got all this kind of stuff involved in being a thing that takes in energy and reproduces and has variation in it that can be selected. How do you get that thing in the first place? Darwinian evolution doesn't explain, or even purport, even try to explain, how life came to arise in the first place. To quote uh, from just one article um, from a, a journal in 2018, Edward Steele et al. That the transformation of an ensemble of appropriately chosen biological monomers like amino acids, nucleotides, into a primitive living cell capable of further evolution appears to require overcoming an information hurdle of super astronomical proportions. All laboratory experiments attempting to simulate such an event have so far led to dismal failure. And design loci two, fine tuning. And then I wish. Since Fred Hoyle's uh, prediction of a finely tuned resonance state of the carbon 12 atomic nucleus back in the 50s, scientists have come to recognize the existence uh, of, of, of chemistry and of biology, and especially the existence of what philosopher Robin Collins calls embodied conscious agents, beings like us, if not exactly us. Uh, depends upon a staggering degree of cosmic and indeed more local planetary fine-tuning, as the phrase goes. As uh, Craig points out, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, there appear in them certain constants, like uh, the force of gravity. Uh, The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for those constants. They don't determine them. And there are initial conditions as well, upon which the laws act. Uh, For example, the amount of entropy, the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe. Why why didn't the universe just kind of dissolve itself as matter and antimatter came into contact in the early universe and sputter out? Why is there still stuff here, dependent upon that ratio between them? And these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. For example, a change in the strength of the atomic weak force by one part in 10 to the power of 100 would have prevented a life-permitting universe. The cosmological constant that drives the inflation of the universe is fine-tuned to around one part in 10 to the 120. The odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition uh, existing just by chance are on the order of about 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now, Those numbers are beyond super astronomical. Um, Let me give you some context here. It's generally quoted that there are around about 10 to the power of 80 fundamental particles in the whole universe. So these numbers are numbers that you cannot write down longhand, even if you could put a digit on every fundamental, fundamental particle in the known universe. Lee Smolin does a rough back-of-the-envelope calculation of the combined odds at uh, one in 10 to the 229. And Dawkins agrees that these things are fine-tuned, or that there is complexity and specification, fine-tuned in such a way as to allow peacocks and humans and so on, which gives us this nice argument for fine-tuning design. But again, he seeks to counter it, in this instance, he again finds the complexity part of the first premise, just as with the biology example, by invoking the many universes idea. It just says, there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. And of course, we can only find ourselves in one of those few universes which are compatible with our existence. Now, there are at least eight problems with that kind of suggestion. I'm going to skip ahead a few to some of the more important ones. Um, And uh, to kind of bend over backwards here, I'm not going to talk about invoking actually infinite multiverses, because there's even more problems with that suggestion. I'll just look at very large ones. Um, So basically, you're saying, if x number of monkeys existed, then they could type the plays of Henrik Ibsen by chance. Well, OK, maybe. but anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis, explanation for the works of Ibsen, are gonna ask if there's any independent reason to believe in the existence of X number of monkeys with enough typewriters and so on. And if not, they will jet the many monkeys hypothesis as an ad hoc hypothesis that's adopted purely for the purpose of saving a theory from refutation, but without any independent rationale and they will favor the single author hypothesis. I think the same logic applies. Um, Dawkins is saying basically, if there were enough, then I could explain away the complexity because I give myself more rolls of the dice. There are enough different universes in order to get to the conclusion that the fine-tuning argument won't work, but I've got that flushing away here because he just asserts that But as astrophysicist Adam Frank says, there are no empirically grounded scientific reason to believe there is such a thing as a multiverse of parallel realities, let alone one that's large enough. Which is the next problem. Even if a multiverse did exist, how do you know it happens to be large enough to explain away all of the improbability that you need to explain away? Well you just make an ad hoc assumption that it is, right? The cumulative effect of all these fine tunings that Craig was talking about erodes the, the probabilistic resources of the string landscape, says Bruce Gordon. Or um, Dr. Graham Swinard, um, used to be at Southampton University, uh, says even an infinite number of universes may not give the attribute that's required, that is a cosmos fit for life. As uh, theoretical physicist John Polkenhorn commented, The infinite sequence of even numbers, for example, is distinctly short of oddness. (laughs) That kind of brings out the ad hoc nature of the claim. It's also question begging, just to summarize Paul Davis here from his um, book, The Goldilocks Enigma, you know, why is the universe just right for life? Like the porridge that was just right for eating. He says, multiverse is merely shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse, One only has to list the many assumptions that underpin the multiverse theory. There has to be a universe-generating mechanism. But that raises the obvious question of the source of the quantum laws and the laws of gravitation, including the causal structure of space-time and blah, etc, etc. You you have to make a lot of assumptions. You have to posit a lot of complex stuff in order to generate lots of different universes and guarantee that they're different and not all carbon copies of the same (laughs) <laughs> unlivable in universe, etc. So as Stephen Meyer says, not only does the universe-generating mechanism in inflationary cosmology require and unexplained fine-tuning, he actually argues that it actually requires more fine-tuning than it was proposed to explain. Okay. <laughs> actually, the, the ruckle in the carpet just ends up getting bigger when you try and kind of shift it uh under the dining table. Brian Green worries that it undermines the practice of science, basically saying, you know, if we just assume that there's this multiverse out there so that the fine tuning of the universe isn't even something that's unlikely, well, basically anything we observe, why couldn't you just go, oh, that seems odd, but hey, we live in a really unlikely universe. There's a whole multiverse out there of, of unlikely things happening. probably what's going on. It's unlikely. There you go. Move on. Science kind of becomes moribund. it is astrophysicist Rodney Holder points out our universe is far more special than we would would expect even if it were merely a random member of the subset of universes that are compatible with our existence. If you kind of run those, those numbers in that thought experiment You would expect us to be in a kind of average member of that subset. But our universe is too special to be in that subset. As the atheist cosmologist Roger Penrose says, uh, consider how ridiculously cheaper in the sense of improbabilities it would be to simply produce by the mere random collision of particles, the entire solar system with all its life ready-made So, that is, compared to the numbers associated with the fine-tuning of the cosmos. Ridiculously cheaper. So the problem is, why did we not come about that this way, rather than from an absurdly less probable 1.4 times 10 to the 10 tedious years of change over time evolution? seems to me that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of the, the bubble universe idea, the many universes idea. So in light of that cumulative case and other arguments against uh, Dawkins' objection to the first premise here, I don't think he manages to undermine it and the argument still stands. Do I have, I know according to that clock I'm shooting over a little, but can I have five minutes and I'll finish? Dawkins does famously try some philosophical rebuttals to this conclusion basically. First off he says, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable. That's just wrong. Um, question, do we make a legitimate explanatory advance if we explain this Neolithic ad in terms of design? Yes. Would this still be a legitimate explanatory advance if no one had ever heard of neo-Darwinian evolution, like, you know, if we found an arrowhead before Darwin, right, could we still legitimately say, oh, that looks designed, and that would help us understand it, yeah? Um, or if this arrowhead were discovered by the first crew to step out of their, their capsules on Mars and stub their their Mars boot against something and pick it up and go, oh, I can't do that. Um, Oh, an arrowhead. (laughs) Oh, maybe it was aliens in this instance because we haven't been here before. Uh, And so on. Yes. Take two for Dawkins' uh, philosophically rebutting design. He says, and this is what he calls like the, the central argument of his book, The God Delusion. He says, the designer himself, in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex, note that word, entity, of the kind that in his turn needs the same kind of explanation. Well, who designed the designer? That's a complex way of saying that. Well, okay, some atheists and naturalists are happy to accept a designer or designers that exhibit or probably exhibit specified complexity and so do raise further explanatory questions, but so does our Neolithic Designer of the arrowhead, right? Um, But still, why think that the designers must be complex in the sense of specified complexity that raises explanatory questions? Well, Dawkins says, look, God, I'm bracketing, has to be clever enough to calculate the values, all those constants in the fine-tuning, has to be, and to listen to the prayers and praises of all these people at the same time, and so on. Well, in a debate that the agnostic philosopher, Sir Anthony Kenny was chairing, uh, Kenny obviously couldn't uh, bide, bide his tongue at this point and he stepped into the discussion that Dawkins was having with uh, N.T. Wright, I believe it was. And he distinguished the complexity of structure from the complexity of function. Uh, with this illustration, he said, the electric razor can only cut a beard, but the cut throat razor might also be used to cut a throat, etc., etc. You can think of all sorts of uses for it. That is, demonstrating that something exhibits a complexity of function of things that it does is not the same, and doesn't demonstrate that that thing has a complexity of structure, of organisation, parts arranged together in an unlikely way to achieve a specifiable outcome. Demonstrating complexity of function doesn't demonstrate complexity of contingent structure. In green, in red. Dawkins' argument is only about the green, (laughs) not about the red. Dawkins' reply to Kenny was, I really don't see what you're saying. Well, he's saying that God can't be complex in the sense of being an unlikely contingent arrangement of parts. Like these OMG, design your own deity fridge magnets that you can buy from Amazon. <laughs> Where you can arrange different bits together to make a more complex picture of the deity of your choice. and Mix them up. That can't be the case with the designer if the designer were God and God a necessary being. Dawkins is begging the question against the traditional theological understanding of God, as Thomas Nagel again says that God, if there is a God, is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. But Dawkins' objection depends upon treating him as such. So I think, in summary, that it's entirely legitimate to say that this argument, one, two, and the conclusion that follows from it, three, here, is science, that the best explanation of the cosmos both I think at the cosmological and the biological level, includes an appeal to intelligent design and to call that science. I think that's, yep. And then you note that there is this gap here, if you want to get to this five conclusion, therefore the best explanation of the cosmos is theistic, that the designer is God with a capital G. I think Dawkins doesn't do a good job of arguing that it couldn't be, But intelligent design as a scientific theory doesn't argue that it is. And people have different opinions about this. How do you cross this gap here? As Sam Harris, the atheist philosopher says, even if we accepted that our universe simply had to be designed by a designer, this would not suggest that this designer is the biblical God or that he approves of Christianity. Right, exactly. You've got to add a premise. You've got to add a premise to the effect that the best philosophical explanation of premise three is theistic. You might give reasons like, well, theism does avoid infinite regress, and it does comport with other evidence and so on. This is the sort of thing that Stephen Meyer argues in his recent book, Return of the God Hypothesis. But you need to argue that, and there are plenty of people prepared to argue for other designer candidates. Be Be they it was aliens, or we're living in a virtual reality of reality and this isn't really real, like Elon Musk thinks, or it was Plato's demiurge, or, you know, pick your favorite candidate, but people have different candidates and they need arguing about, you can't get to five without four, and that fact in itself is enough to show that one to three the scientific theory of intelligent design is not, as some people uh, in America have called it, creationism in a cheap tuxedo. <laughs> Thank you very much for indulging me in the little extension to time.
0: Thanks a lot, Peter. Great. Okay, let's take a few minutes. Just um, turn to your neighbor. Say hello if you don't know them. Do. Just get so what, yeah, what would you like to ask Peter? What was new? What struck you? Um, yeah. What do you need clarification on? So, have a couple of minutes to talk and then we'll take some questions. Okay, we'll join back together. I think what we're going to do is we'll just take two or three questions just to start with, you know, in right so that then Peter can just choose sort of which one to deal with first. So if a few people just put up their hands if you have a question you want to ask or something. Okay, we've got one Duncan at the back. Great. Get my glasses on. Garrett next to him. Great. One <coughs> at the front. Okay. So Duncan, do you want to say what yours is first and then we'll take one from Garrett and one at um, the front and then we'll... Yeah. Thank you. You've done an
2: excellent job. <coughs>
1: The, the neo-Darwinist no, or the the, the... the methodological the naturalist way. or the or the metaphysical naturalist if they're actually claiming it. Depends, yeah. So I was wondering if you could give just one point in their favour. What have they given us? Or just completely bundling in <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an okay. uh, excellent question. I like okay, that.
0: Okay, so what? Hap- it sounds like what have the Romans ever given us? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <What are>
1: the- <laughs> <laughs> Underfloor heating. Okay, great. That's, and
0: then Garrett, you your one? Okay, we'll repeat them just before you answer them, yeah. and, and then cause I'll just get them first, and then we'll yeah. Garrett, you had something too. Yeah. Um,
2: I don't know. I think you
0: briefly touched on um, irreducible complexity. Right. Um, my question would be if you know of any recent developments in that field.
1: Okay. Kay. Thank you. All
0: right. and then at the front here. Yeah, I I, I heard Dawkins on a radio program much when he was asked Prokaryotic to eukaryotic cells. We don't know, but it must have happened because we're we're here today. well, This isn't science, you know. There's there's a there's a. So I just wonder whether this is an epistemological question, really, Mm. uh, uh, or theory of knowledge type question, really. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't knowing contingent on willingness to know? In other words. Something about the nature of Mansoul's willingness mm, mm. to
1: be open that actually can restrict him
0: knowing. Mm, 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 yeah, matter? sure. Uh which one do you want to take first? <laughs> so, we'll so we've got one on um uh, So and yeah, uh uh, uh a, it ever given us? an
1: epistemological question that is a how do we know stuff yeah. question. Um can our ability to know things be restricted by our willingness to, to know things? If we don't like an idea, we're often resistant to even considering evidence for it, right? So, yeah, I think clearly, and this kind of cuts both ways, all of us have our biases. We, we bring a certain set of assumptions, kind of worldview assumptions with us to the discussion. Um, And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to try and make sure that amongst those assumptions that we bring to the discussion are are ones that will help us genuinely get at truth and um, try and counter the fact that we are biased, in a sense, that we have to be dedicated to... You know, following the argument where it leads, to considering viewpoints different from our own, to not just reading books created by people that we agree with, uh, and so on and so forth. And you know, maybe none of us can do it um, perfectly, but it certainly seems that that people do get cons- uh, against you know their prior inclinations by coming up against arguments for for different viewpoints. People do uh, change their their minds, um, and I think can do so rationally. And uh, you can't, I think, disagree with that idea um, in a rational way. Uh, Because if you want to say, no, people can't change their minds rationally. And I say, well, what's the point of me arguing with you then? Because you're not gonna change your mind rationally, right? But actually, I think I should engage with you, because I think from experience shows that, that, that people can and, and do. And I, I'm standing up here as an example of this. You know, in, I, in my teens, I went to university as a convinced theistic evolutionist. Uh, I was very ha- happy with the standard scientific neo-Darwinian grand story that I kind of laid out. And I just kind of figured, yeah, that was how God did it. And that, that's, you know, this is science and that's philosophy and they're compatible and that's fine. Which, you know, in in, in a sense, I would still kind of say, but I think that's kind of too simplistic. And actually when you dig down into the, yes, but okay, God could have done it that way, but what's the evidence that he did do it that way? What are the rules that people are following when they try and get at the answer to that question? And are those rules helping them get at truth or obscuring getting at truth? and I think the, the interesting thing that I, that I do in my papers and my book, and I try to do in this lecture, is to quote time and time again from atheists and naturalists, uh, agnostics and so on, people that disagree with my fundamental worldview opinions, but who say, yes, you know, specified complexity is a reasonable way of inferring design, or yes, it's reasonable to call ID science. The real disagreement comes on what is the actual, is there enough evidence in the natural world for us to infer design from and uh, that's the real discussion and that of course is an empirical scientific discussion which brings me to the question that we had from the back see how I did that of of, uh, are the kind of the 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 Darwinist school Are, are they just sort of bumbling idiots as you said or have they actually produced reasonable ideas have they have they brought Things to us, as as you said, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us kind of thing. And and I think Darwin's idea was a reasonable hypothesis to to put on the table. I don't like the way he stacked the deck for it. Uh, And I think the more that we've learnt about the world, learning things that he couldn't possibly have known about at the time, has actually falsified the the explanatory adequacy of the theory, but clearly he did actually point his finger at a process that does happen and does explain some things. You know, signing up to intelligent design theory is not the same as signing up and saying, everything in that grand evolutionary story is false. Because it doesn't all stand or fall together. And once you realize that, you can take it on a case-by-case basis and, and say, I'm you know, perfectly happy with ancient earth and common ancestry. And actually here, there are some atheist biologists who are kind of arguing about universal common ancestry being true or not now. And there are atheists arguing about whether the standard neo-Darwinian picture is sufficient to explain things or not, but they're still trying to work within this kind of blind watchmaker paradigm. And I think that's philosophically problematical because it obscures getting at truth and, and so on. But yeah, I, I, so I, I'm quoting lots of people that I actually agree with where I can. And of course, when I agree with them, I think they're thoroughly sensible. So I would, because, yeah. Uh, and remind me of our third question. It
0: was um, about irreducible complexity. Ah. And, yeah. Just... Right, okay, so I... I, I,
1: I yeah, I, it, it, not to confuse you, but this is why I didn't really mention it, although I had a picture of an example of it. Um, I talked about specified complexity. But there's a, a biologist from the States called Michael Behe who published a famous book in the 90s called Darwin's Black Box, where he put forward this idea that at the molecular level, where you, you have little, um, basically you have machines, machinery in our cells made up of proteins working together. And he argued that when you have a, uh, a sufficiently complex, working together of proteins to achieve a particular function. This is what he called irreducibly complex, where, where if you took away one of those parts, the machine stopped achieving the function. And he gave this analogy of like the mouse trap, where you, you, you have a board and you have to have a hammer and you have to have a spring and you have to have a catch. And you know, if you don't have a catch, well, it just goes twap and then it doesn't catch mice, it doesn't work, right? Or if you you have a catch, but you don't have a spring, it it doesn't achieve anything. You have to have a certain number of parts working together before you get a selectable function, right? And his argument was that there are cases where we have biomolecular machines that achieve a function, but they're only achieved by having enough parts working together to do it. So you can kind of see the link, that actually that's that's really a specialised instance of specified complexity, complexity and the the specified function, the complexity of having enough parts that have to all integrate together to achieve the function. There's been a lot of back and forth over the years uh, about that. Um, I'm on board with it. The, the, The question was really about what's the kind of latest that I know about this. Um, I had a, a picture up of the, I mentioned the outboard motor, and I had a little picture of the the, the flagellum whip kind of motor that uh, certain bacteria use to swim around, right? And they have a, they have a uh, an acid-driven rotary motor connected through a universal drive shaft to a propeller. It's an outboard motor, you know. Um, And it's got lots of parts working together. And if you've done, you know, you can do the experiments and kind of do gene knockout experiments and get rid of genes and it either doesn't form or it doesn't work and so on. And people have said, ah, but there's a subset of those molecules that form something that looks very much like uh, a pump that bacteria, some bacteria use to inject things into cells. And that pump is used in the in the formation, in the production process of this uh, outboard motor because it, you put the, the propeller proteins get ejected outside the cell to form the, the propeller through this kind of pump part of the machine. And so there's a subset of these parts that performs a function. Therefore, the motor is not irreducibly complex. But that was not the definition of irreducibly complex. Indeed, he specifically in his book said just because you have a subset of those parts of a machine that can to get together do something doesn't mean that the machine they were part of is not irreducibly complex, because when you take those parts away, the machine doesn't work. It's a bit like saying an engine, a petrol engine, a car is not irreducibly complex because you can take the fuel pump away and use it for Pumping water in your garden, or if you can do that, I know I'm I'm not, but (laughs) just because it's like, well, even if you could, even if you that is the case, well, a the pump seems to be irreducibly complex, (laughs) and how did the pump become connected in the right kind of a way to all of these other parts in order to achieve this other function beyond themselves? And actually in evolutionary terms, uh, there's now been several papers uh, showing that the idea that maybe you, know, you had this pump and then step by step, you could evolve the bacterial flagellum motor from it. They've shown that in the evolutionary timeline terms, it's probably the fact that the pump only appears after the motor appears. So if anything came from anything, the pump devolved, from the motor, the more complex motor, not the motor evolving from the pump.
0: Right. thank you. Uh, let's take, uh, we'll take some more questions. We'll just take some more together and then let Peter choose. So, so Peter, right at the back, just.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Peter. That was right. so, interesting and stimulating. I think I followed most of it. <laughs> Onde? Um.
1: OK, so the, 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 the question is to the, the argument that information comes from mind, what is the kind of naturalistic response? How do they try to account for the information in the fine tuning or in the biology of the cell in DNA and RNA and proteins and so on? We'll take, I'll, I'll take one more. OK. I think there are. T- oh. Sorry, yeah, oh, one sorry, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. getting ahead, thank you. Okay, uh, thank you very mm. much for tonight. I'm considerably older
0: than Peter, and my brain has had an absolute workout tonight. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Mike. But what I found most encouraging is that there is a seeming movement now that intelligent design has become a thing.
1: Mm. That might
0: be a very way of explaining it, but to me, that's how it is. Yeah. whole of
2: the creation, evolution type of thing, hmm. is designed, is design. and are we, or when would you think, would be at the point
1: that it would be taught next alongside a present evolution? State? Right. Yeah, okay. okay.
0: <coughs> Two questions. Which one do you
1: want to do first? Uh, remind me that, that the first one yeah, is about information. Information, so yeah. I'll take that one. Yeah, yeah. So I I think, basically speaking, two fundamental responses, and and one is the kind of philosophical uh, route of saying something like, well, it's not science by definition. You can't talk about that here. Um, To which I'm, you know, as I kind of argued, I'm very tempted to kind of say, well, okay, you have your science defined like that department here and I'm going to go and start up a new subject down the corridor called natural philosophy which is what science used to be called where our question is what's true and you can keep pursuing questions about what would have to be true on the assumption that naturalism is true (laughs) Um, or or to kind of to, to kind of by, by definition or fiat, just kind of rule, rule the question out, or but by just assuming, or, or if you could, you know, if you could argue, you know, naturalistic worldview, okay, it may have difficulties explaining information, but choosing a worldview as a comparative exercise. And I think that naturalism, hands down, beats all of the competitive worldviews, competitor worldviews on all of the other issues that you might want a worldview to address. So, overall, although there are still some you know outstanding problems, maybe we'll solve them one day. It's been called you know, promissory naturalism, um, but it's still, it's still the best view because I think I've got really good reasons for being a naturalist. And that's, ba- that's basically Bradley Montan's position. He says: I think you know, intelligent design theory shows that there's some reason to believe in design. And I think there's even some reason to believe that the best explanation of that, that the designer is is God. But I remain an atheist because I think I've got other reasons for being an atheist that are sufficiently strong. Okay, And that, I think, is a much more kind of respectable, interesting dialogue partner there. Um, the other thing... To do is to to go the, the 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 way that Dawkins was was going in my talk there with the the many universes. Um, there's a, a chap in the states called Eugene Kunin, who, who calculates that the, the the kind of the biological specified complexity is just so huge that you know there's no plausible way of accounting for the origin of life um, in a, a single naturalistic universe and therefore he's prepared to believe in a multiverse. It's kind of like, well, you know, okay, the, the only way to go is to give myself more throws of the dice, so I'm going to embrace a multiverse. Now, I think there are, there are problems with that, as so I've shared, but that's the other. So you, you go multiverse, or you go some sort of philosophical definitional route, or, or some more kind of hard-nosed philosophical defense of naturalism. So two broadly, but kind of three, when I've broken them down, yeah.
2: Yeah because I, I, I think information is a real challenge to nature because not just data it's not just complexity it's not just lots of things or yeah it's patterning, a it's sequencing it it
1: it's strongly it, it, it doesn't come out of the substrate that was as you're saying it's what
2: information is very specific it's it's, it's you know,
1: yeah I agree. I agree. Um,
2: just, uh, just on that, it's
0: interesting though how the multiverse hypothesis has become incredibly popular, hasn't it? i yeah. thinking of the film, you know, everything, everything all, all at once. Time, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, just, it, it's something that's sort of captured the imagination, the yeah. social imagination. It's, it's a very
1: useful storytelling device. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actors love being able to play alternative versions of the character that they have to keep playing and things because it gives them variety and... You can, you know, you can ask lots of what-if questions, of, of, you know, in science fiction kind of contexts. Um, it's useful for doing that, but I think as a scientific explanation for things, it's real problematical. Um, but to come on to the, the, one I guess, might be our, our last question is: you're saying it does seem to have become part of the cultural conversation now. I think at a at a, at a kind of popular cultural level, this kind of our know, in a virtual reality. Um, it's a, a view that the philosopher Nick Bostrom put forward in a paper, but that has been popularized by folks like Elon Musk on, on social media. Or, um, you know, yes, there's design, but it was uh, aliens that do it. And there, there are genuinely, you know, there are atheists who, who believe that, right? Um, not only that, there, you know, there probably could be aliens out there somewhere, but you know, aliens have visited Earth. I think there are like, a lot, statistics um, reporting that something like 30% of Americans or 30% of Westerners or something, not only believe in aliens, but believe that aliens have visited Earth. You know, it, it comes from watching documentaries uh, on whatever um, the channel that was the History Channel is now currently being c- called. Um, it's certainly not history, so I'm glad they changed the name of the channel in that sense, uh, you know. Um, but okay, you know, if you're a member of the Raylian UFO religion, which is big in Canada, right? You're an atheist and you will say, there's clear evidence of design in the world. And the designer was, were aliens. And if I ask, oh yeah, but you know, an embodied alien really would fall foul of Richard Dawkins issue about, wouldn't they exhibit specified complexity and therefore point themselves to design? The alien will say, yes, and that designer was an alien, another alien. <laughs> And I'll say, Wait, aren't you getting into an infinite regress here? And they will say, yeah, what's your problem with that? And Now, there's a long history of, of debate in philosophy, particularly around various versions of the cosmological argument, about whether trying to explain things by invoking an actually infinite regress of causes is legitimate or not. Right? I happen to think not, but there, there are people who think so. Right, so I think at the, at the kind of popular cultural level, there's more and more people, and you're seeing more and more kind of self-published books on Amazon and, and, and so on that are kind of saying, uh, you know, how angels are involved in our design, or, or let's you know go back to Deism, or let's all sorts of you know our creation by the by the Eholims, aliens from Planet X or whatever. And at that popular cultural level, that's kind of got folded in to the conversation and is now much more part of culture. Uh, I don't think that's true at the kind of academic level. I think at the academic level, it seems to me that the the ID uh, kind of crowd, as it were, have, have won the philosophy of science debate. And there's some kind of grudging respect, at least in some quarters, on on the kind of can we have a kind of test question, as I show in my paper, but real disagreement that, that exists is on this rubber hits the road, is there evidence? And Massimo Pigliucci says, if there were something that was irreducibly complex in the biological world, that would be a really good reason to believe in design. It's just that I don't think anything is. But that, you know, that's a, a dispute about, okay, what is the empirical evidence? What are the numbers that we can run here? Um, And that is a dispute that ultimately has to be solved by rules of science that help us get at truth rather than obscure it. So it's
0: not going
1: to come to a school curriculum? I don't don't think it's coming or or should come to a a school curriculum anytime soon. Maybe, you know, it's the sort of thing you might cover in philosophy. And maybe it would be really good if alongside science, we actually taught some philosophy of science. Mm And the ways in which worldviews actually do, does affect how people do science and what they consider science to be. That that's changed over history, and and so on. Um, that there is a that there's a discussion kind of going going on. But I, I certainly wouldn't want to kind of swing from a kind of you know schools must teach standard neo-Darwinism as if there's no dispute about it to schools must teach intelligent design theory. Um, even if they then leave the discussion about who the designer is for, you know, other classes or whatever. Um, I I, I think maybe, you know, teaching the debate, as it's called, can be pedagogically useful uh, if you equip people with the right tools to do it. And you're not trying to do that as a kind of surreptitious method of smuggling creationism into the classroom or something like this, which, you know, has particular resonances in in the American context that we don't have here, of course, but um, yeah.
0: Excellent, thank you so much Peter. Um, lots to <coughs> think about, but it's been really good, so thanks for helping us engage with this, the topic. Your book is, that's come out is called Inferred...
1: An Informed Cosmos, Informed cosmos right. Essays on Intelligent Design Theory. Okay. And uh, I, I show you the back cover because I'm very pleased to have in- endorsements from philosophers and scientists on, I think it's four continents. Right. <laughs> so. Um, and what is on the front
0: cover? Uh, to...
1: it's, uh, it's a close up photo of a peacock feather. Uh, okay. um, and if you want to ask me about how, how the images are, are produced on peacock feathers, it's absolutely fascinating. But I don't have time to go into it here, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. so
0: see, um, we'll see you next week.